getting athletes to put their shoes on twice a day and do the minimum stimulus required for a performance is still a bigger part of coaching. You know, getting getting athletes to commit to doing 500 to 800 hours a year is, is probably the thing that's going to make the biggest difference rather than 89 grams of carbohydrate in the yep. race. Do the, do the biggest things first and, uh, and then everything will fall into place after that. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. A few weeks ago, I was incredibly fortunate to have a good chat to highly regarded Australian walks coach Brent Valens. Brent was a fantastic walker himself, representing Australia in the 20km road race at the Kuala Lumpur Commonwealth Games in 1998. Unfortunately for Brent, a chronic hamstring injury ended his career prematurely. However, fortunately for the walking world, he turned his attention to coaching. After completing a graduate coaching position at the AIS and majoring in coaching at university, Brent soon helped guide Nathan Deeks to his bronze medal in the 20km road race at the 2004 Athens Olympics. Brent was the official Olympic team coach for race walking on that trip and has been at every Olympic since. Other walkers he took on around this time included a young Jared Talent and Adam Rutter, amongst others. In this chat, I really enjoyed quizzing Brent on his and Jared's journey together as coach and athlete to the 2008 Beijing Olympics. We opened the chat discussing how Brent monitored Jared's training load. From 2006 to 2012, Brent was the AIS chief coach for race walking and took the Australian walks program to new heights. He took teams overseas each year, organised training camps and helped foster the development of the Australian walking program. He is highly sought after both locally and overseas as a presenter. And of course today, he continues to currently coach a number of world-class race walkers. I hope you love this chat. I got a lot out of it. And as you'll see, Brent is a wealth of knowledge. Here he is, Brent Valance. Yeah, and then I just listened to one of the presentations you gave in 2011 um, about Jared Talent and uh, the journey that he went on between 2001 to 2008 and oh, how okay. you... So, was that the one that I did in Leeds? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, at the end there, you mentioned how you tracked so much of his training um, and that was part of... Was it part of your scholarship uh, with the AIS um, and your, your, the program that you did there? You had to do a project and, uh, yeah, like, um, yeah. Is that how you came up with, with sort of how you record all the training? Yeah, or? Well, yeah. that was actually an assignment. So 
when um, so essentially that aspect of the spreadsheet design came it predates what's available commercially now so I'm sure you know that with programs like training peaks and Strava and yep. and Garmin all of that all of that is just at the push of a button but um, so I was doing my master's in sports coaching through UQ and we were doing a subject called um, something of the effect training the elite athlete. And, and part of it was we had to design a system which was to streamline how we wrote our programs that had a feedback loop. So it wasn't just looking at the training that you prescribed, it was actually giving you feedback of training that was done. And um, at that stage, I wasn't really 100% on knowing what we were looking for. Yeah. Um, you know, anyone who's an edu education or a coach education has done a whole range of stuff on periodization. So other than getting very good with spreadsheets, it does help you. Um, um, we, we, we try and design our programs to the textbook methodology. So you've got all of these perfect wave-like lines that says, you know, as intensity goes up or as intensity comes down and you've got this nice little intensity line that goes up and, and I didn't really know how to track intensity, um, whether we were doing it. There are so many different ways to track intensity. So I was just averaging um, speed across the kilometres, walked across the week, and, and we were looking at that. And we found that it just yo-yoed up and down all over the place and nothing was ever this nice little smooth line. Um, trend lines look like everything was moving in the right direction, but you know, comparing one week to the next, it was very, very difficult to do. And, and over the years, we've started to look at, um, you know, how many kilometres and how many minutes we're spending at threshold. And, and um, that seems to be a better indicator, providing, of course, you're doing the other 80 to 90% of your training volume. So yeah. Um, so there is, there's, there's stuff you just learn along the way. And then you also then start to pick individual differences. So each athlete has to have their own worksheet, but it does, it's time consuming feeding the data into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Garrett was very good, I must admit, because we had a system where he would just type the numbers in himself, he'd email it back to me and we had this, and this was even before we knew how to use Google Docs. So we had, you know, so many different versions of the spreadsheet. Um, yeah, it's, it's it was something that, after a while you see patterns and you you know what's working and what isn't working and and more importantly you can start to predict um, performance which I think a lot of our coaches um, haven't worked out that you know this body of work over here equals this time or this performance and you know we're hearing all sorts of coaches talk about how great their athletes going but probably not running to where they think their training indicates so so there's a lot of good things that come out of having good data yeah whether you're using it at the time or you can go back and retrospectively look at it it's it is very very good to do did you find that um it was at all predictive of injury like did you ever feel like um you used it at the time to make decisions about about um reducing training or or if you, you reflect on it you're like oh okay that's why he might have got injured or um, well, through the period we were using this, Jared was very resilient. He didn't really get injured. Um, we probably went a four-year period. That, like there were there were needles, but there wasn't any any serious injury. 
Um, through that time as well, I mean, if I give you some little bit of history of the AOS Walks program, um, my career, um, I was, you know, lucky enough to be coached by a fellow by the name of Ron Weigel. Ron Weigel came to Australia in 1998, pretty much at, or 97, at the end of his very, very successful career. He was a former world champion, um, world record holder at the 50K. He won silver medals at the 88 Olympics in both the 20 and 50K, but he came out of it. So he was very much at the volume end of programming. And we are talking, you know, 10,000 kilometres a year, um, big weeks, 250 to 280 and, and upwards of 300 kilometres a week. And they were the programming that was instilled upon these, you know, these fantastic young Australian walkers that he inherited. Now, along the way, many of us were unable to achieve those volumes with any sort of training intensity or, or without getting injured ill or just, you know, almost ceasing to function as a normal person in your normal life when you're, when you're doing these high volumes. So, um, but having said that, the two athletes who survived that regime won medals at the 2004 Olympics, and that was James Savile and Nathan Deeks. But interestingly, at the time, Ron had left Australia and both of these athletes had worked out their own way. So they benefited from the training culture that was instilled into them. They benefited from most definitely this massive aerobic base that they developed by doing just huge volumes of kilometres. But I think by the time the 04 Olympics had rolled around, they both worked out a different way to do it. So, so DC was definitely doing less volume, but he was still a very, very high volume trainer. Um, Jane Savile had um, linked with her husband as a coach, who's, a, who's still today a professional cycling coach and was looking at, you know, he was looking at training her more like, like a cycling time trialist. And um, so they both found their own way. They both had reductions in volumes. They were definitely focusing on different areas of their training. And when I came into coaching, um, I was, I, I did things with Jared, a 19 year old Jared Talent in terms of the volume space that I wouldn't do with a young athlete today. But Jared proved himself to be very resilient. So, um, yeah, it was uh, listening to one of your previous podcasts with Rabs, he, he was talking about, you know, the fundamental rules. I think it was, you know, you know what was it? Rule one, your long run. Rule two, your long run. Yeah. <laughs> well, when it was in the Ron Bible days, we had a rule three and four. We were doing four long walks a week. Yep. So yeah. we were, so Dixie was not, it wasn't unusual for him to do four sessions of 30 kilometres or more in a week. Yeah. And even with, with Jared, we, we weren't taking, we were doing similar patterns, but we weren't doing those sort of mileage. So at, at the end of it, you look at all of these training programs that you designed, and if I could predict an injury based on volume that was universal for everyone, that would be much easier. We had some quite serious injuries of some of our girls doing 60 and 70 kilometres a week. And we had people who seemed to be able to do 160 to 200 without any problems at all. So, um, so the, the, the volume part of it is individual or the injury part of it is definitely individual for the athlete. Um, yeah. And also you also inherit athletes later in life. So you don't get to put a lot of the foundation things in through their teenage years and, um, I know that a lot of the walking community, particularly in the teenage areas, are not, they haven't embraced 
what many in the running community is, where they where they do put their shoes on twice a day and go for a run. Um, we don't have a prevalence of overtraining our junior athletes. In fact, we've got quite the opposite. I'm, I, I would love to have a race walker come into the AIS program who was always already doing five, six and seven sessions a week. Unfortunately, they were doing, you know, the Tuesday, Thursday night and a race on the weekend, almost like just about every team sport athlete. So, yeah. Um, so it was more the differential in going from, you know, doing something that they just did and were pretty good at it and being identified and brought into a full-time training environment. So surviving the first year was, was paramount yep. to what happened later down the track. Yeah, I heard you talk um, about Jared Talent's career um, and I heard you mention um, before he really started up um, training with you, he'd already been... He, he was doing a lot of swimming. Um, he'd done a bit of triathlon. It sounded like he'd already put in a fairly good aerobic base of training. He had a fair bit to work with already. Yeah. So, so when Jared came to the AIS, um, he, he had been cut from a VIS scholarship. So he was essentially coming out of junior ranks. And, and I mean, one of the things with race walking in particular is we only have one distance. So unlike a lot of our running athletes who progress to a marathon, they've got the whole gamut of distances to run. So I always use the example of Benita Johnson. She qualified for the Sydney Olympics as a 1500 runner. She ended up running the 5K. And then between 2000 and 2008, she built up through running 5 and 10K on the track to being a world cross-country champion um, to eventually running the World Half Marathon Championships and then marathon. So. Um, we don't have that. We, we basically finish our junior career as a 10K walker and then distances double overnight and you've only yep. got 20 and 50. So we were able to bring Jared in on scholarship um, in late 2003, he arrived in Canberra. Um, I didn't coach him in his first year on scholarship, but a lot of that was based on his 3K performance on the track, which was comparable to Nathan Deeks and Luke Adams, who were our top walkers at the time. Um, Luke had just come back from the Paris World Championships in fifth and, and DC was injured that year, but he was an Olympic medalist the next year. And his 3K time was comparable to them at the same age, but he fell away very quickly as the distances went out. And that was mostly because um, if you were judging people on their 10K performance or 20K performance, it's a product of how much training you're doing. It's not a measure of your ability or, or what you could possibly do. So, so bringing Jared in... Um, often a, a sub 12 minute 3k for a walker which is you know that's the same speed they have to do to, to be an elite 20k walker um, but he was grossly undertrained in terms of his specific walking but it was apparent that through his teenage years he did do um he was quite active with with um uh, in Ballarat through the cross country. He was, I know that he was swimming, particularly when he was a younger athlete before school. So like most swimmers who do that early in their life, he hates it now. He just can't stand <laughs> swimming. Um, there was a bit of it in his early, early years. Now swimming is something that just, you get rounded shoulders and your head go and you walk into a pool. It's something that you have to do when you're injured. So <laughs> it's a good incentive not to get injured for most athletes. Yeah. Um, it was, um, I wouldn't say by any means an outstanding swimmer, but the thing that the swimming culture in Australia does, it does put you into an environment that they're not scared to, they're not scared to throw a bunch of work at young athletes. 
Um, and my experience more recently with the Maribyrnong Sports Academy is the young athletes that um, are very, very highly trained and exposed to a very early specificity of training, uh, gymnastics, swimming and um, tennis, which interestingly are the ones where you pay for your coaching services. So it's almost this loop that for coaches to earn money, they, they need to have the athletes continually coming through the door. So, so all of those professions earn money from their coaching and it's a high volume, high turnover and high contact. So you do need to have them coming in most days of the week to keep your business afloat. So, so it's almost this, um, um, I mean, it, it, it proves it works because almost everyone who succeeds comes through that system, but it, but that there's a trail of destruction left behind it. And yep. you know, there's not many coaches in our industry earn a living out of coaching unless they're paid and employed or, or run a business. But most of the people who run a business don't run it out of elite athletes or junior developing athletes. So, so, so Jared was fortunate enough to come through that. He did, he did do a lot of swimming. So at least, you know, getting out of bed before work or uni and putting your shoes on and going training was something that he did at a young age. Um, but one of the things when I was reviewing his training before he came to the AIS was he had, he was, you know, fifth at fifth, I think, at World Youth as an under eighteen. Um, he was still swimming, and um, you know, he was probably doing between fifty and seventy kilometres a week on his legs. So that that's a pretty high training volume for a young for a young athlete on top of their swimming. And then the following year, he went to World Juniors, and he went backwards. I think he finished nineteenth, and he decided that he'd just focus on his walking that year, and he quit the swimming. But the difference is he'd, he'd actually reduced his training volume significantly. He didn't, he didn't do a corresponding increase of an extra, um, you know, between three and six hours on his legs that he'd taken out of the pool. So, um, so when we got him to the AIS, he'd had a year in limbo and he was struggling to transition from a junior to senior athlete. And, um, and also you've got to remember that when he stood on the start line at world juniors, he was still 17 years. So, as an under 20 athlete, he was before his 18th birthday. And then the following year, he's, he's a senior athlete um, and being judged as a 20K walker. So there wasn't the corresponding increase in his training through that period as well. So the, the centralized program of the AIS was, was very good for someone like Jared at the time, bringing him in, bringing him into a senior training culture, training with senior elite athletes at senior distances and, um, um, and that's uh, unfortunately something that we don't have now. Um, but Jared's um, development from that point was was almost perfect. He did from 2004 to 2008. Um, you know, we're talking six six thousand two hundred kilometres on his legs. You know, five hundred or so hours a year. So, and and not really missing a beat. And everything was about year on year progression. So. Um, and was in a very competitive training environment because we did already have two outstanding senior elite athletes in, in Luke Adams and Nathan Deeks, but he could also be beaten by his, he's got to remember the, the guy who was two years younger than him broke our national junior records, um, Adam Rutter coming through. So, uh, so it didn't matter where he was, whether it was racing or training, he was getting, um, competition from people who essentially we all lived in the same suburb. So, so it was, a, it was a good environment for him at the time. Yeah. 
so that sort of shows how important depth is um, with, with um, yeah, the development of Jared Talent. And with Adam Rudder, um, uh, like he was obviously a great, great race walker himself. Um, but what would you say um, the difference between Jared Talent and Adam Rudder was in terms of what they eventually achieved? Um, they looked like they were tracking very similar. I mean, Jared was Jared was unfortunately disqualified at the 2007 World Championships, um, which is probably adding to him being a, a left-field medalist in 08. But he was sitting in fourth place with 5K to go in a breakaway. So he was definitely one of the best in the world in 07. So Jared, uh, so Adam Rudder was two years younger, and in 2009 he was... He led the world championships through 10K and got disqualified. But um, the difference between the two athletes is Adam was, I would say, physiologically far more gifted. He was a lot stronger. He did a lot. His performances were better off lower volume. He could do some amazing things in training. Um, but unfortunately for Adam, there was no love for being an athlete. It was, and I've had a couple of those, you know, very gifted, but don't live, breathe, eat, not not um you know to do this and what it is in any of these hard work sports it's you know repetitive close skill cyclic activity that requires a dedication and for whatever reason a love and adam just did not have it um despite the fact that and and he drifted in and out of periods of enthusiasm where um where he did some some good things when he was young, but once he got past the age of twenty three or so, those natural gifts um, don't carry you anymore. It, it is about the amount of work you do, and um, and not only that, as a as a young coach as I was then, I, I probably didn't have the skill set to deal with it as I did. Um, we tried to do our best for him. We tried to, you know, I was part of the process in handing him over to another coach to have a try, um, which. You know, probably prolonged his career. We got we got him into championships, but you know, as I said, the, the love for it has to be there. You've got to love doing it. Otherwise, um, if you're not waking up every day with genuine performance or or achievement goals, it's very hard to do what's needed to be done. Yeah, and just going back to uh, all your monitoring of Jared Talent's uh, training, would you also monitor? Uh, stuff like sleep and stress levels and, and things like that, or was it l largely training volume and intensity? Uh, we dabbled in a lot of this. I, I had a very good and close relationship with Shona Halson at the AIS, who was the um, the recovery physiologist, and there is no doubt that we, we collected data in this. So we had our athletes on our training camp walking around with the ActiGrass um, uh, wrist devices, so it's a movement sensor that monitored sleep. We gave sleep feedback. Um, we we definitely did that on a on a range of our athletes, and it came up with some interesting data. Um, Jared, I mean, he's he's hardly a hellraiser of a young man, so he had pretty consistent training and sleep and work routines anyway. Um, we we dabbled in a weekly. Uh, rescue survey, which was led by one of our recovery physiologists as well. I, I found there wasn't an enormous amount of data we got out of that, that that you wouldn't find out by being at training every day. So, you know, most of the discussion, and Jared was a lot easier for me to communicate with because 
Um, he was, as he was training for 50k, I'd have a lot more one-on-one -on -one time with him on the bike, and we'd always, you know, most of it was just spent chatting about a whole range of things. So not only are you getting feedback within the session of how he's going, and um, and that's the stopwatch is a big part of that, but also where the conversation goes and what you chat about, and um, uh, so. So you got a lot more feedback from that than you did by a, a tick box questionnaire. Um, we didn't do a load monitoring that's available now because a lot of that was in its early days. So the AIS, AMS system is a perfect example of that. Um, we found the development of that system came from the football and the soccer program. Um, at the time they'd expanded their program, they had 40 male athletes between 16 and 19 who all had the one coach doing the one thing um, pretty much uh, the same training routines. Whereas our program didn't do that. We had, we had a 28 athlete program, eight of which were um, AWD athletes. So we had amputee athletes and CP athletes. And then we had, um, you know, at the time we would have had a, a, a hammer throw and throwing near 80 meters and squatting 300 kilos on a big day in the gym. Um, <laughs> and then we had skinny little 58 kilo race walkers um, doing upwards of 200 kilometres a week, plus we had speed plough, explosive sprinters, and we were across two genders. So the data we were getting was all over the shop. It was very, very hard to come up with a set of norms based on training data because we're only working with, with small talent pools. So a lot of the stuff that we see in, in sport now is, is heavily influenced by the team sport mentality of... Um, um, but they are working with a with quite an homogenous group that are pretty much all doing the same thing. The difference in the AFL world is you've got your first and second, third year players, and, and versus your you know every club's got their two hundred and fifty to three hundred game veterans, so they obviously train slightly differently. But the load monitoring is based on their KPIs of of having your best players that cost them a lot of money on the park and. Mm -hmm. Um, if they're not on the park, then it's not a good investment. Whereas a lot of our sporting is we are pushing the boundaries of what is human performance and, and you know, we get six monthly reviews. We, we get targets set through your NAS, which isn't based on your load monitoring. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's based on um, performance funneling. So you get to one level and you're expected to move on to the next in two years and there's and I guess for us, we, we base it on a minimum dose of training that's required to get to a certain level and we know what that is. And I've often found that if we hand over that to non-coaching staff or people who don't understand the specifics of the sport or the event, then um, it's, it is very difficult to, to they red flag athletes on the potential risk of an injury and um, which, look, I know all of the data that's coming out around training availability and I most definitely agree with that but there is also a minimum amount of training and it doesn't take a lot of time on the internet to research what the best are doing and and there, there has been a, a worldwide reduction in training volumes from what I can see there's there's a lot more specificity involved in training but that also comes with an increased injury risk as well so um, so for everything that I have used, me being in the daily training environment more often is, is a much better way to monitor training than 
outsourcing it to the physiologist or physio um, unless they've got a very, very close understanding of your sport. Yep. Um, I'm not quite prepared to hand that over yet. Yeah. And with um, training and coaching from when you started um, becoming a bit more involved with the coaching aspect, you mentioned that training has changed um, to a, a general extent as in it's not, you know, well, the volume's important, but it's not all about, like it's a bit more about specificity. Like how have you seen um, some, or how has your training of some of your athletes um, changed in general? Um, I know that's hard to say because every athlete's different, but um, what uh, what are some some things that you do now that you you probably didn't used to do? Um, look, I can remember when Jared was first selected for his first world champs in 2005. Um, he actually finished fifth at the trial and then posted an A qualifier, um, a couple of months later. And, um, so what was that? 2005. So he was 20. It was before his 21st birthday. And, and we celebrated the, the time that he did and he got in the fastest race in the world to date. Um, he was 43rd and snuck under the A qualifier by seven seconds. So, yeah, the, the depth of that race was unbelievable. So as, as good as it was to get that out of the way, at the time um, when he returned from that, I, I didn't think he was ready to be thrown into a world championship race. So when I said before there were things that I did then that I wouldn't have done, I wanted to make sure that he was ready. We were – we. We did big volumes. We we didn't have funding to send him away for races, so we were replicating race pace intensities and volume. So, you know, I did things like give Jared six times and seven times three K sessions, which I I would never do with a young athlete now. And at the end of the day, we did get Jared ready. Um, we we pushed him out to doing one sixty to one hundred and ninety K volume blocks at that that time, um, and. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of, you know, I, I do a lot of research on what a lot of the other sports are doing. So particularly at, um, you know, if we're looking at all the endurance events, um, you know, just recently I did a table where I was looking at, at World Junior Championships for all of the different sports. So if you start at rowing, which is seven to eight minutes for, for junior men and women, and you, and you push out to the road race at men's World Juniors and cycling, where you're going three hours and 11 minutes, and then you can see what the long session is in each of those comparative to the race distance. And um, I started to look at volume on legs, not being a kilometre measure, but more time because race walking is slower than running. Um, I'm sure everyone studied Kipchoge's marathon data when it came out prior to his Berlin world record. And we were all looking at his last six and eight weeks. And, you know, I was looking at that going, well, that's, that's, you know, 11 or 12 hours a week on his legs. It's, it's, it's actually a lot lower than some of the stuff you'd been reading on the Kenyan athletes previously. So, um, you know, I'm looking at stuff that I did with Jared um, around that time. And we were, we were doing between 14 and 16 hours on, it, on his big week on his legs. Um, you know, Jemima this week, Jemima Montag, that is, will do 14 hours on her legs. Um, sorry, not 14 hours. She'll do 140 kilometres on the legs this week, and that's that's around the 11 hours because it's a slower pace. It's similar to what Kipchoge's doing. So, so looking at time on legs, um, I understand that race walking doesn't have the same eccentric load as what running does, and um, there's definitely been a shift towards um, in marathoning 
is the pace of the long run. I think almost every textbook you read in, in the old school and, and particularly what the ATFCA manuals were putting out was making reference to the long, slow distance. Whereas these days, I don't know any elite runner who who does that, but they'll do it based on feel and what they've done in the rest of the week. But there's definitely a, a much bigger push on, on getting closer to, I won't say race pace intensities, but um, you know, Jared races 50 Ks at 4, 4.23, 4.24 a kilometre, but we would do long walks at 4.36 to 4.40. Um, we could do 20s and 25 at, at his race pace quite often. But we're also keeping tables on not so much threshold. I mean, there's a good correlation between 4 millimole threshold and 20K race performance. And... We measure that often, but we design our sessions to get as much volume as we can done at close to race paces. So, so we were we were working on twelve to sixteen kilometre sessions at, at four millimile threshold, which for Jared was anywhere between you know three three fifty six per kilometre and four oh two, um, with a with a big emphasis on negative splitting and following race patterns, and that's the type of thing that we measure. We measure how much of your volume is done at, at thresholds and and how much volume you can do at thresholds and as we know it's you, you gas doing two a week at those if, when you try and throw in a third it, it just doesn't work for some reason it can work for a short period or you've got to take out volume for it to work but getting training mix right is I feel a lot easier for 20-50k walks and marathon than it is for once you start getting into the crossover of energy systems and, um, I, and I'm, I'm not a I, I haven't coached running but but the event that we the event that we do the worst in Australian athletics is the 800 meters we we haven't had a we haven't had an IAAF point scorer since Ralph Dubell and the world's moved on and, and we we've produced athletes who do one-off 145s um, and evidence is they don't get out around one so we, for whatever reason, that the 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 coaches who coach everything from eight hundred to marathon um, isn't working for us in that area. Um, not that I've got all the answers, but um, yeah. you know, if we're looking at some of our females who who tend to you know our four hundred runners stepping up to run eight hundred, run two minutes um, rather than um, you know, I always I always talk about we we have this ability in our younger age athletes to if you if you've got if you display some aerobic ability you'll run the end range distance for your 800 so it starts in little athletics where you run 800 meters and the next when you move into the 11s 12s and 13s it goes up to 1500 meters and you move out and that then become an 815 runner and then they introduce the 3k and then you run the 3k and then it moves out so if you're running the end range distance right through your junior years you move away from track and field skills and drills you move away from from learning how to foot strike and improving the quality of foot strike and doing hurdle drills and things like that. So um, I, I, I tend to believe that that can be a problem. Um, yeah. And then when we look at the transition from our junior team into our senior team, the, the two best events, so if you're looking at people who've completed at World Under 20s, um, in the women's, it's the women's 1500 metres because if you run the 1500 at World Juniors, you are more likely to run the steeple, the five, the 10, 
the marathon later down the track. Whereas if you if you run the three and five, um, it, it, it reduces your likelihood. So that's in the female event. Um, yep. The men's is different. It's men's 200. If you run the men's 200, you've got four by one, four by four, one, two, four, four hurdles, long jump. Yeah. Um, they have about 65% conversion rate from going to World Juniors to then making the senior national team. So, um, so they, like all of these things are, are quite telling in the way we, the way we coach. And um, my, my coaching influences most are not in the, you know, the puff and puff physiology distance event. I, I have a lot of my coaching influences and, and friends and people I communicate with regularly are, are in the, the speed power domain. So um, we tend to, I think we can learn a lot more, particularly from coaching technical aspects of our event from them. Yeah. Um, mind you, they can learn a lot more about the mentality of what's required in the hard work events than from, from the further out in distance you go. But we, we, we definitely can learn a lot from each other and also you can learn an enormous amount from the other sports. Yeah. How, how often were you recording, um, uh, say, Jared Talent's blood lactate? Um, uh, like how often were you doing testing and how, were you ever um, – because I've always been intrigued, like walking – um, is such a technical sport. So does Jared's um, heart rate sort of reach the intensities that you'd expect um, a marathon runner uh, heart rate to, to reach when he's doing something like a 50K or a 20K um, race walk? Um, or is it, does, does, it not, does it not go as high because you're um, restricted by the technical aspect of the sport? Um, no, it gets as high. So okay. we, it's it's very hard. It's it's probably harder because of the technical aspects to really push um, the. Uh, once you get on the track and you're doing those really really high intensity short rep sessions that you do coming towards the end of the season, we're probably restricted in how intense it can get. Um, and Jared's physiology is different to anyone's we've had because he has an underwhelming VO2. Um, it, the, the highest VO2 we ever recorded on Jared was 67 mils. So it's not, I mean, Regan Lamble as a female was 73 mils and a repeat 70 mil VO2 at the AIS where values are always lower. But what we found over the years and, and you know, when you interviewed Philo, he alluded to his PhD being in the whole area of running economy and Jared's, first physiology test we did had um, his race walking economy at a given speed equal to Simon Baker when he was the number one in the world. And this is an undertrained 19, 20 year old athlete. So over the years we learned that generally you don't make improvements in economy until you've reached your ceiling limit for VO2. So when I talked about some of our athletes coming in undertrained before, Regan Lamble came into the VAS, uh, to the AIS with a, with a VO2 of 60 the first time we tested her and at the end of the month she was 66. So we have a 10% improvement in a, in, in a four-week block of training, generally because she was under-trained. Yep. We bring her on scholarship the next year and then, you know, she's making her first world championship team and giving us a 72 VO2 max. So, but the interesting thing is watching her progression and the changes in her physiology is that her improvements came from a big improvement in her VO2 max and it was only 
years on year of trading after that that we started to have the changes in economy. Whereas Jared, he he approached his ceiling in the VO2 very early in his career. So he was making some amazing improvements in his exercise economy. And we don't know enough about it. There's not enough research on it in race walking as there is in running. There's a lot of literature in running. Um, we obviously did the same interventions for our training as what Philo did around heat and altitude. Um, there's less evidence to support um, plyometrics being good because we don't actually use, we don't have a flexed ankle knee on foot strike where we use stretch reflex. And yeah. um, But there is, there is theoretically, we can get some gains through there as well. But we've, we found out years later when we started doing, you know, force plate EMG stuff, um, that the magnitude or amplitude of contraction that Jared had to walk at fast speeds was almost, it was almost nothing there. It was amazing how little muscle recruitment he required to walk fast. So that's where his economy came from. And um, we didn't understand what we were looking at the, at the time, but there was a Japanese biomechanist who, who did his PhD in that area and he was, he was always forthcoming and sending me information. Um, we had Jared at, um, at Leeds University do a biomechanics test, um, as all of our walkers did in 2008. And it was probably 12 or 18 months later when the data was reviewed by this Japanese um, specialist that he, he just said, I've never seen anything like this. So all of a sudden, um, EMG was, was giving us why Jared was so efficient. Now, was that a product of his training? We don't know. We, we don't know how to get it into other people. We probably know how to identify it now, but um, in terms of why he was like that, I'm not sure. Yep. Um, and we've had, we've had athletes that have improved and had better economies than Jared. Um, there are three um, who've given us tests that one of them was the guy who beat Jared in Rio. So Matteo Toff from Slovakia, he, we had him out to Australia. The other one was Adam Rutter. Yeah. Um, he, he didn't ever give us consistent results like Jared did. And more recently, Ridian Cowley, who to me is the most under-trained athlete to walk as fast as he ever has. Ridian didn't come into the environment that we've had and, and I've taken over Ridian's coaching since last year. Um, and he's now got a world-class PB and I believe has so much more to offer for, for what we do. But his, his economies were, were amazing. So, so he's also going to, you know, we just need four years of consistent training out of him to actually have it. And also for him to believe in that he could do something. Um, I'm yep. sure you know him because he's got some pretty impressive running times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazingly. And, and he is, even when I look at his running times, because I know what he does for training, and yep. I, I know, you know, his sixty-nine minute half marathon as a as a as a junior athlete was was very impressive because I I took him as I was the team coach of that world junior, so I know what he was doing for training, <laughs> and he was under trained for what he was the race distance he was thrown into. So, so it is, um, you know, where Ridian is now with his age, we know that he's got a lot of improvement left, and. Um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, but in terms of how often we tested, we did test in the treadmill. We didn't test in the field that often. Um, we were acutely aware of um, 
uh, submaximal economies and four millimole speeds. Two and four millimole speeds were were very very good indicators for us. Um, there was, you know, we we could predict performance based on you know the training log that we kept. We had physiology results. Then we could tell an athlete if you went, if you got into a right race in this two to four week window, you you should be able to walk you know one hour twenty twenty one for for twenty k. Yep. So. Um, so that's where we were able to use physiology, but it was also combined with what we know about training and how they were training. Um, yep. It did help um, reinforce what we were doing. I I don't form the basis of all training on the four millimile speed or the or the threshold. I do. I do. I would if we did that, we might be limited to what the threshold is. We we would generally go well. We need to walk one hour 19, we need to do it on a 29 degree day and we need to do a closing your last 10 in under 39 minutes. Yeah. That's a that different thing than just holding your threshold pace. So we we were designing our sessions. So the first half of the session were on threshold and then we were we were trying to um, do a lot of our long rep sessions where we were, we were introducing change of pace and um, trying to manage or manage the damage yep. after. So once once fatigue set in and, and you were above your threshold is is how you could then still maintain a pace close to that to to replicate what happens in races. Yeah. So you would do fart legs? Um... Yeah, we did fart legs. Um, whether we were doing set distances or, or time pieces, um, we would, you know, fart legs was usually the introduction before we started to introduce the... Um, the, the long rep or threshold type sessions. So uh, Jared would do, we'd do a fart leg around a 20 kilometer loop in Canberra and we'd warm up for 3K and then we'd either do time pieces or or 2K efforts and 1K floats. Um, Pre-Garmin, I used to walk around with a wheel and put markers on the ground everywhere. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, Jared would, would complete the 20K in about one hour 27, one hour 28. Um, so you'd get about, you know, 10 or 12 kilometers work done at, at four minute Ks or under and the rest, um, you know, the warm up and warm down was included in that, but the floats were, we'd try and keep those at four forty five to five minutes and, um, and try and walk eight minutes or faster on the efforts. Or sometimes we just time reps, we'd do, you know, five, three, eight minute blocks, times three and we'd vary it that way slightly but we'd always work on doing anywhere between 40 and 54 minutes at that race pace on those type of sessions yeah yeah nice and as I said, it, there is less impact in terms of eccentric load so we can probably get away with it a bit more than 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 some of the runners can yeah that's what i was thinking when you said before that um you know sometimes you're able to have you know three or so long runs in a week um yeah because i don't think a distance runner would be able to to manage uh, stuff. they were the old days when yeah. they were done pretty slow too yeah okay yeah i, I before i came on I, I i dug up one of um you know the training log that i had with nathan deeks in the 0304 season and yeah there was a week where he did a 260 kilometer week and that <laughs> that ended up 21 hours and 18 minutes on his legs that is an enormous 
and he was walking morning and, and running afternoon. And, you know, that's... There aren't too many people who can work nine to five and hold a job and do 21 hours on their legs in a week as well. So so that's what I'm talking about. We, we have had a, a reduction in training volume and a lot smarter methodology in how you piece together your training week. I think most people don't venture too far away from race pace intensities at any point in the year. They're doing something um, at race pace intensity. Um, so... Um, my, my recent experience with um, Perseus Karlström, so I, I coached a fellow from Sweden who medalled in Doha. Yep. Um, he had the lowest annual volumes of anyone that of the medal-winning athletes I've had so far. He just clicked over 5,000 kilometres. Now, he, he did have some injury periods through the year. Um, some of the things that you've read, there's, there's a lot of retrospective stuff coming out on athlete training diaries and... Um, what you'll find is 500 to 800 hours, specific hours a year is tends to be a norm. Now, the people who do 800 or even a cross-country skier and triathlon or people who are doing non-load-bearing stuff can generally do more hours. But once you start introducing load um, or high-injury risk sports, I know I know rowers do a, do a lot of supplementary training and cross-training because um, just to more than anything, they get a lot of stress fractures in their backs and uh, ribs and things like that. So they can't do that sort of volume in a boat, whereas yep. they tend to do a lot more, um, you know, what they – I mean, they, they they do a very prescriptive five-zone five training model. Um, they, do a, they, they do calculate time in zone two at the low intensity. So, um, so it is it, – it's always interesting to, to look and, and see how the other sports train. Yeah. Do you do that? Like, would you look back at your athletes training and, and calculate how many to- how much time you spent in, yeah, zone one, two, three, four, and five? And... Not so much that. Five zones hard. Yeah. Um, I have gone through the process. I know there's a there's a there's a very successful Italian coach, and he doesn't he doesn't do it that way. He he calculates as a percentage of race pace. So, and he calculates his training zones that way and. I looked at Jared's and compared to when Jared was second at the OA Olympics in the 50K, the guy who won, Alex Schwarzer from Italy, his his training was there on the internet and broken down to every kilometre, every minute in, in speed bands. And, and I just compared Jared's to him. Obviously, we were much, we, we were, we were much lower on the volume. We were also did a lot more stuff at, 20k paces because in those days Jared was essentially a 20k walker who did the 50k very well, whereas he he progressed to being a 50k walker outright. So, um, so I've done that. Um, it's much easier to do a, either a two zone or a three zone model. It's easier to calculate. It's easier to just eyeball and see where it's at. So. Um, the 80-20 rule is always a good one. So that's, you know, 20% of your volume is done above your two millimole threshold. So, and, and you'll find when you when you read this and you go back and look at your diaries retrospectively, it pretty much fits in. I, I mean, I looked at that and I, I started to look at when you when you accumulate the, the high intensity sessions and you add them all up, that it ended up on or around 20% of the annual volume. Um, 
you know, we, we hit that 500 hours of specific race walking in a calendar year and, and those things, you go, well, we were able to do that anyway. It wasn't done by design. It was, that's a lot of training just falls into that zone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. How much um, running would you get the walkers to do per week or not much? Uh, oh, look, it depends on the athlete. Yeah. If, if they come with a running background, I'm, I'm happy to run them. Um, if they don't, it just increases their injury risk. So yeah. we've got, I've got some athletes I don't run. Um, at the moment, Percy from Sweden, he doesn't run at all. Um, so when he does 5,000 kilometres, it's all race walking. Um, Jemima at the moment is, is out running. She's not a strong runner. She's not a natural runner. Um, sometimes her running speeds are the same speed as her walking speeds. Um, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, never, it's never part of the intensity. It's, it's afternoon easy easy runs, not, not um, part of it. Yeah. But we also noticed that when we're coming into specific prep, we will, we will, we'll do a lot more running in general prep as the second session, but in specific prep, we will, we will walk and, and in the morning and walk again in the afternoon because specificity is probably the, the number one thing. Um, Ridian still runs. Um, he gets enjoyment from running. I know that he at least twice a week runs with his, Beyonce Amelia, who's also um, actually a two forty six marathoner, yeah. um, so they they and which is good for Ridian because it's a, it's a nice easy pace for him. Um, you know when I when I review his Garmin Connect, there are some days in a tired week I can't tell whether it's a run or a walk session unless he's actually written it in. But mostly it's pretty easy to tell. Um, you know his his running rhythm is is naturally on or just under four minute Ks, whereas that is, that's a genuine high intensity rep session for walking. So it's pretty easy to identify. Whereas sometimes I get onto Jemima's Garmin Connect and, um, you know, she can, she can run a, an afternoon run at five minute Ks, which sometimes she'll do her afternoon walks at that. So, so sometimes it's pretty hard for me to tell, but um, there are, there are some of the walkers have been Pretty solid runners, um, particularly as junior athletes. They've, they've often done both. Um, I'm I'm very fortunate enough. I've you know, a young girl from Czech. She's lost her way, and I've started coaching her this year. Um, she was the world junior champion in 2014 for the walk and broke the world junior record. But she qualified for five events for world juniors. So <laughs> she qualified in 1500, the steeple, the three, and the five, and she won the walk. Um, she was supposed to do the steeple the next day, but but didn't. Um, yeah. And she's also been to a junior world championships for cycling as well. So, um, so we, we, I mean, her PBs, are, um, as a junior, she, she ran 424 for 1500, 926, Jeez. um, for, for a, for 3k, 1009 for the steeple. She ran 3359 on the road for a 10k and she's run a 114, 25 for a half. And she did all that as an under twenty athletes. Um, wow! So she she's been a um, you know her twenty k PB is faster than our national record. Um, she didn't have a great year last year, so I've taken on her coaching. But similarly, she likes to run. She likes to. She's there's not a lot of other walkers for her to train with in the Czech Republic, so she does enjoy getting in with her local running group in Prague, and she does running sessions on the track with them. Um, she also similarly she's she she did have a cycling contract so she she doesn't do a long 
a long walk or run on a on a weekend, she does a long ride. So, so um, so she's a little bit different um, as a as a young athlete. Now she's twenty five. She's probably now got to be a bit more specific with her walking if she wants to continue to be successful. But yeah, we've we've definitely had some people who who they're proficient because they do on legs volume. So they don't look good. Some of them. <laughs> One of the German walkers um, has recently run a two seventeen marathon. So, oh wow, yeah, um, <laughs> I know the the two thousand Olympic silver medalist in the fifty k walk. Yeah, um, yeah, he did he did Olympics in ninety six two thousand two thousand four as a walker. I know he tried to make the two thousand and eight team as a marathoner. He just fell short, but he ran a two eighteen marathon. Um, we've had a lot of girls do it. They've they've. They've um, started their careers as walkers and for whatever retired and then run marathons later in life and found their way back in the national teams. But um, generally they're from nations that will select a two-hour 38 marathoner as opposed to in Australia. We know that, you know, all of our girls have to run under 228 these days. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's – I know that um, the, the current European champion for the marathon, the, and I can't remember her name now, she's from Belarus – very famous for those photos you saw of her having a nosebleed during the race. Oh um, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, well, she she was a walker. She was um, she went to World Juniors and and uh, Junior World Walking Cup as a walker, and so that was back in two thousand and six. So she's you know, she's transitioned into marathon and done that obviously very well. Um, we're not going to say we've got a, anyone out there who's a you know the the two hour two three four five or even two hour <laughs> but. <laughs> But um, there's there's definitely been a few who've done well, and I know Ridian Harbour's ambition to run under a two hour twenty marathon, and he does want to run a marathon at some point. So, so we'll see how he goes with that. I I think he probably needs to recognise there might be a, a bit more training that needs to to <laughs> get under him before he starts starts talking marathon in under two twenty. But um, yeah, he definitely wants to do one, and and Ridian has a twin brother who's who runs the Melbourne Marathon most years. So, um, you yep. know, I think he's usually aiming for a sub 240. Yep. So. Yeah, Brent, we haven't even um, talked about your own walking career. Um, you represented Australia at the Kuala Lumpur um, Com Games in 1998. And um, yeah, I thought it was a pretty um, incredible story of how you qualified for Kuala Lumpur and uh, how you paid your own way um, to go to Europe and uh, you, you um, got the uh, B, B qualifying standard over in Europe um, and then, yeah, qualified for the, for the event. Um, yeah, do you mind, um, yeah, harking back to, to those days and, and what you remember and, yeah, around that time of your uh, career? Well, interestingly, having listened to your podcast where you did interview Rabs and he made reference to one of his Olympics. There's still no entry in his training diary. That's very similar with me and my performance at Commonwealth Games. So, yep. um, let's just say it was a, it was a battle to get there. And obviously, um, um, my entire lifestyle wasn't based around or you know, being an elite athlete. And I didn't realise that until I got into the team camp prior to the Commonwealth Games. So, so I was I think I was 26 by then. I I didn't come through any junior programs. I, I didn't start serious training until I was an adult. Um, I had a very, uh, a very 
good coach to that day in Yvonne Moline and um, she coached a lot of us for a long period. So she coached essentially the whole AIS Walks program. They left Yvonne to go to the AIS. Um, that included Nathan Deeks and Luke Adams and Jane Savile and myself. So we had this real, real good squad. But um, I had definitely that year made the move to, to train with Ron Beigel and be part of the AIS program. So um, I did used to work at the track at Homebush, so I was the poor bloke collecting everyone's training fees as they were trying to jump the fence. And, yep. and you know, I'd, I'd go out and train after I locked up the track at 8 p.m. at night. I was I was doing my third year of my sports science degree at the time. I was struggling to make ends meet as an athlete. Um, I can remember some of my entries in my diary that year are really bizarre because I, I had a rather serious hamstring tendinopathy developing and I, there are diaries, there are diary entries where I'm describing that I'm in, I'm struggling to finish sessions, my hamstring's really bad and I had no money to go to the physio. Yeah. Um, I was recycling and, and doing shoes. I was giving up work at the, at the, at the track to, to drive to Canberra to go and train with the AS group. But yeah, I did go to Europe that year and, um, and Ron did organise quite a good tour. We did a couple of races in, in um, Germany that were on our circuit. And I did do um, the day that I did, which is still my PB today, um, I was quarantined in a room on my own because I was sick. Oh, wow. I with the flu. And, and there are a lot of people out there who know if you are in a team environment and you get sick, you are, you know, it's, it's, it's like... It's like um, the medieval days when you had leprosy. You were <laughs> you were segregated, and no one wanted to be near you. And and, uh, and but I was in very good. I had trained very very well, and I had made massive improvements in every area of my training. And um, and I did do a PB that day. I did do a, a B qualifier. I, I had done one domestically. I did one then. It was you know, we're only talking one twenty four thirty. I've coached. I still believe I've coached a lot of athletes with lesser ability than to me to walk a lot faster. So <laughs> um, my career was definitely, you know, I, I should have been a lot better than I what I was. Yeah. I, I came home, but the interesting thing of that was after nationals, I had a really bad nationals, and we we the New South Wales Institute of Sport program. We all flew down as a program. We we came back from nationals on the Sunday night and. And I was standing at the carousel waiting for the bags to come off and um, the, the New South Wales Institute of Sport head coach was Keith Connor. He'd asked me how my weekend went and, and I basically described it was not too good. And then he said, what are your plans? And I said, look, I'm going to travel to Europe and try and qualify overseas. And he was very, very ruthless and told me that, you know, we, I had been set a time and a date to do that and I hadn't achieved it. And, start training for next year and as he said that he leaned forward and picked his bag off the carousel and just turned and walked away <laughs> so it wasn't was it? so and i'm a big keith Connor fan he was the one who employed me at the ais and um there is a there is a, a level of truth that needs to be delivered to athletes and sometimes high performance managers miss the mark but i think he was pretty much on the mark then that was his way of telling me i'm on my own and i'll be funding myself so i, yep. I did go with the ais athletes so he, I remember when when I was flying home, I did have to go over to the ATM and draw withdraw as many Deutschmarks out of the ATM as I could to hand over to the coach, which was essentially my three meals and accommodation for the three weeks. And I played my own airfare. And, and yeah, yeah that, that pretty much 
set me broke for the rest of the year as a <laughs> as a university student living on on a study and, and working a few hours at the track. So yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, and you know, I, I was chasing times again domestically. I did another time on or close to my PB just before we did we did um, we did Commonwealth Games trials late that year. Um, so yeah, I, I was one of the people who was a B qualifier and and added to the team, you know, very late. And I can remember my parents asking me, "Are we buying tickets to go to Kuala Lumpur?" And I just said, "Well, I'm not in the team, so I wouldn't." Um, <laughs> and I, I was named in the team. Yeah. So um, yeah, it wasn't. Obviously, it was a good experience to be part of a national team, and particularly at that era, because there was a groundswell of um, a lot of good things happening with the Sydney Olympics just around the corner. Um, I did the 20K walk along with Nick Ahern and Nathan Deeks, who finished first and third. And I think I, 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 I joke, I, I, I think I beat a couple of Fijians and the fella from the Isle of Man. Who, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I was quick to point out to Jemima that when she won Commonwealth Games that, that she was four minutes faster than I was at my Commonwealth Games. So, <laughs> like, not, not one of the... Greatest things that you when you when you look up your historical records of what your performance was, but it, it did also drive me as a coach that there is only two times to perform as an athlete: one's in your trial, and the other one's at the championship. And and all of the every bit of focus that I have around my athletes is about trial performance, and again at the championships. And invariably, we we do pretty well at championships based on that model. Do you reckon that experience also um, influenced you um, in future years as a coach to sort of um, give that chance to a developing walker that you feel like's got a bit of potential to encourage them to sort of you know have a shot or or try to stay with the sport? Yeah, I think definitely for my time at the AOS, no one missed their opportunity. Um, we were able to afford more scholarships to younger athletes. We we threw the net very wide. We we ran training camps, not like the former national youth program where you just do a death by PowerPoint, a couple of training sessions at a very, very high expense. We ran camps that ran for 28 days, so we influenced daily training environment. You got to you got to see who responded to the training you were giving them, you got to see whether they had a thirst for it, you you, um, you know everyone would go away that summer and they'd knock out PBs over five and ten k distances. We we had athletes starting to do domestic season A qualifiers in our championships, which had which was you know it wasn't happening as often. Whereas these days, our athletes have learnt to do it at home rather than chase them overseas. Um, we also aligned our our domestic trial to conducive to good performances so you know instead of doing a, a 9am race start in Queensland around QE2 on a on a pretty garbage course at a time of the year that they don't have daylight savings and it's 33 degrees we were doing 7am trials on on known fast courses um, we were timing our trials after our our training camps particularly if we were doing altitude interventions so so our trials are usually you know that third weekend in February because We've done, we've done a pretty extensive altitude intervention through through January, so we pick the best time to race after that. Um, but most definitely, we 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 definitely invited the under nineteen squad members in to do a camp with the AOS athletes. We 
we had very much a greater success in transitioning our junior athletes into our senior team. We, if we weren't able to offer a scholarship, we, we challenged them that if you think Canberra is the place to be, then pack your bags, move to Canberra. I'll still coach you. We'll, we'll make certain areas of the AIS available to you. Um, so people like Brendan Reading, who competed in the 2016 Olympics, was training with the AIS walk squads since he was a junior. We had Ian Rayson, um, Becky, Becky Smith, as she was. They, they were two athletes who packed their bags, moved to Canberra and trained with us. And, um, Ian, Ian went to a world championships and, and Becky went to the 2012 Olympics. So, so it was the extension outside of the AIS program as well, which, which you know, we, we had a big group in Canberra, particularly going into the 2012 Olympics. We had, um, you know, I coached five that were in the team on scholarship. There was um, um, three that were then coached by um, Craig Hilliard. Jeff Rothwell missed the team through injury, so we so that gave us nine walkers on scholarship. We had two at World Juniors, which was 11. So so our program had grown significantly by, by then yep. in terms of how many walkers were on scholarship. Um, and we, we probably weren't as successful as I felt we could have been with the talent we had. But having said that, Jared's been elevated to an Olympic gold medal then. So um, it's not bad. But I, I felt um, there were nine race walking athletes in the team. And the team, if we ranked in order of the expected results, our athletes ranked sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, did exceptionally well. But some of the ones, who were, um, you know, Dixie was approaching the end of his career by then and it was quite an achievement just to get him on the start line and to the finish line in the same race. Um, Luke Adams was fourth at Worlds the year before, was probably a little disappointing. Um, um, Adam Rutter hadn't progressed as we would have liked. Um, yeah, Chris Erickson was, was unable to get into the 50k team. You know, he was 10th in Rio in the 50K, but he went to his first two Olympics as a 20K walker because it was very, very hard to get into that 50K team. So, so and, and we lost Jess Rothwell along the way through that Olympic cycle, who was you know, clearly outstanding. So for the level of talent we had, we, we probably underperformed at the Olympics. But, um, yeah, it was, you know, I, but I, I had pretty high goals of what, what we set out to achieve. I wanted to have you know, two in each of the three walking events that were pressing for the for the top eight position and we just we just didn't get that. I heard you do another talk um uh where only fifteen percent of runners or athletes do PBs at majors, um uh and and it, it was in reference to Jared Talent and how you prepared him for the two thousand eight Beijing Olympics. Uh, I think you were questioning at the time whether you went and did an altitude stint overseas in Europe. Uh, the year before, um, you ended up deciding to um, train from home and, and uh, do some uh, stints at the AIS at, at altitude. Um, yeah, I thought it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a really, really, what you described in that interview was really interesting in that uh, uh, you really thought about the competition you were preparing for um, and then you sort of tried to uh, yeah, you weighed up the risks and benefits of the of um of what you're going to do in training. Um, do you mind speaking of of some of the decisions that you made back then? Well, first of all, the 
I mean, the stat that I referred to wasn't one of my stats. It, it came out of an article called Greek Myths and Legends, and it appeared in the in a 2004 Modern Athlete and Coach, and it was written by Tudor Bitter, and what he did was he went through um, each of the event areas and described that doing a PB at a major championship is not the norm, and um, athletes need to aspire to... Um, consistency of performance at their qualification level. Um, so, um, you know, making reference to the 100 metres, running 10-2 domestically with a 1.9 tail um, and the height of your summer on a 30-degree day isn't the realities of what happens in round one of a major championship. So, so obviously we know that in the out-of-stadium events, you're under the hot sun, you're in a northern hemisphere, um, warm weather environment, which, you know, given I just described to you that we were trying to hold our trials in favourable conditions, that's not what happens at majors. So at the end of the day, you do need to prepare for the conditions that you're racing in, which is um, a negative splitting event. It's not a time trial. Um, there's not... Um, it's amazing how many people do a performance that when you appear on ranking list that all of a sudden they go well I think I'm a chance now um, but a lot of race favourites are wiped out in the first half of the race in, in tough climatic conditions so so one of the things that I, I definitely did was we needed to prepare for a hot weather event and the easiest way to do that is you go to where the hot weather is and um, one of the problems I had with the young Jared Talent is we hadn't we hadn't at any time during the cycle taking him overseas for an extended period. So I wasn't really prepared to do that prior to the Olympics. So so what we did was we did choose to stay at home. We, we um, and mainly because we had done a lot of our altitude in the altitude house. We hadn't, Jared had yet to go overseas and do an extended period of altitude at a live high train high facility. So we decided we would do that for the 2007 World Championships, which was in Osaka and we then had to overcome the problem of, well, how are we going to do his heat prep? And um, so I sat down with um, Philo Saunders and um, we had extensive discussions on how we were going to do um, intermittent heat. Because um, I'm sure you know that Canberra gets very cold and we yeah. trained at 7 a.m. in Canberra and some days we were minus four at that time, some days we were two or three degrees and we've got to get ready to go and race in 29 degrees. So a lot of the stuff that we did was built around, let's keep life and training routines. I still want him to go to university. I still want him to sleep in his own bed and eat his normal food. We still, um, when you go overseas, you can't take, you can't take Craig Purdom, the AOS physio with you. Yeah. <laughs> or or you, you can't take the AOS recovery center with you. You can't, so all of the things that we had put in place in his daily training environment, we weren't going to sacrifice that. And we weren't going to sacrifice him potentially getting, you know, homesick or or anything like that. And because we, we had such a successful preparation, although he was disqualified in Saka, we weren't going to change that for Beijing. So, so you know, we weren't going to reduce his income by taking him away from work because you still have to pay rent even though you're living overseas. You, you, we weren't going to pull him out of his university regime. So, you know, once you get into that period of where you're spending three months a year overseas, you start deferring semesters and all of a sudden you're on a 10-year academic plan. Um, so we, we wanted to keep everything 
normal. We also had very good evidence that the higher dose of altitude was, was very good. And um, then we had an enclosed environment where we wanted to enforce feeding strategies. So we needed to ensure that he was fueling himself appropriately and train the body how to to drink the copious amounts of fluid that were required. And we couldn't do that in when it's minus two outside, but we could do it in the artificial heat chamber. So, so the six weeks before we went overseas was also preparing him for the hot weather environment. But we also were very, very aware that the change in temperature is a big impact on the quality of training. So we, what we wanted him to do was when he flew to Japan prior, because we did a, a, we did 14 days in Kochi, Japan before the Olympics, we wanted to make sure that he could just, he was already had a lot of those acclimatization, you know, increasing blood plasma volume, lowering of core temperature and just, just the feel of being in the heat because we didn't want to waste five to seven days of reducing his intensity in training at a time that all coaching theory says that's the most important aspect of your training. So, so a lot of that was done to prepare him, you know, when he, when he got on the plane to go to Japan, if it wasn't a hot weather race, he would have PB and he was ready to race. Um, we had key sessions that we were doing on, um, you know, five days and 10 days out. Now we learned from the year before that we arrived in Japan you know, three days later, we're doing this heavy, high-intensity session and it just smashed him. It, it was, you know, he fell off paces very, very early into this session. And so we learned from that and, um, and we were able to, to, to just change the way we did things from 07 to 08. And, um, you know, Jared became very, very confident in his heat preparation. Um, he was confident in his fueling speed. He was confident in... in the volume of fluid that he could drink during the race. He was confident that he practiced pre-cooling before the event, which we know works, particularly in the long events. And, you know, he'd, he'd won a race on the circuit that year. He'd, he's, he'd walk one hour 19.41 in the trial. He'd walk 1.19.48 in Russia. He'd walked a scratch over 120 in China. So he was reproducing the level required to win a medal on three continents that year. So he, he'd learned to travel, he'd learned to race, and he and he'd had a lot of confidence in in that. Um, did we expect him to win a medal? Um, we were hoping. I did I did say to Philo, particularly after a block of training, that he was going to be very hard to keep off the dais. Yeah. Um, the bronze medal in the 20K was um, most definitely one of my career highlights because... Um, you know, it, it was, you know, at the time, he was still our third fastest qualifier in that event. So so Luke Adams had walked 119.15 at the World Cup earlier that year and beaten Jared. Um, Dixie was unavailable due to injury. He, he'd walked faster and was, was clearly our number one athlete. So so even even our own governing body of Athletics Australia, you know, we know how they identify their medals. It's called direct athlete support. That's where they pay the money. And... Um, Jared wasn't on that list and he won two medals. And incidentally, neither was Sally McClellan as she was oh. then. So three of our four medals in Beijing were not forecast by our own governing body. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there was a lot of good things about that preparation for that event. And 
you know, his third place, um, second was probably the, the number one 20K walker in history in Jefferson Perez. And the, the guy who won, well, he's one of the dopers out of the Russian doping factory. He's still the Olympic champion, but he did have his results annulled from every race after that for the rest of his career. So, um, <laughs> and, and the suggestion is out of the CAS report, they, they did have the um, people review his, um, his blood values from 08 and that said that he was doping then as well. So, okay. so it would have been a good, good start to going, I just got second, the silver medal, I've just been beaten by the greatest ever. I mean, it was a great experience because he went out and had his medal ceremony um, followed immediately by Usain Bolt's 100 metres in the stadium at the Birdsmith. So absolute fantastic experience for, for him as an athlete and also for me as a coach. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, Brent, I'm wary that I've just held you up for a long time and, um, yeah, so appreciative of all the information you've shared. Um, I've just got one real final question. You've done a fair bit of work with Louise Burke and uh, uh, with the nutrition for some of the 50K walkers, um, do, do you guys buy into um, trying to become a bit more fat adapted with some of um, your athletes or, um, yeah, where's... What's the evidence at the moment um, in, in regards to um, yeah, nutritionally preparing your athletes? All right, so um, humans have evolved yep. to metabolize a certain way. I'm sure everyone, I, I mean, I couldn't quote it. I couldn't, I couldn't sit here. Although one time when I did my university, we all memorized the Krebs cycle off, offhand. Now, our research, and there is very, very few research done in this area, and Louise has done an exceptional job, and we've done it on race walking. Now, I can tell you, physiology data is if you are if you reduce carbohydrate intake and you have no carbohydrate, your oxygen cost at every given workload increases. So, when we're talking about real live race performance intensity, so the twenty k walk and marathon is done in the in the the 89 to 92% of VO2 max, you may as well tie your shoelaces together and try and run a marathon. Yeah. So, yeah. So there is no evidence that it's beneficial to do that. And that would, that revealed itself in our race performances, our treadmill tests and um, a whole range of aspects. Now I'm not here to say it doesn't have its place in the periodization in your yearly plan. So, We've, we had anecdotal evidence and um, um, one of the walkers on the camp, Evan Dunphy from Canada, he, he will tell you the celebration of coming off the high fat diet was one that involved um, burgers and chips and beers <laughs> and slightly hung over, but the instantaneous improvement they had the next day when they went training. So the, so the, being deprived of training with carbs for a period of time is, you know, they, they were trying to equate it to being in an oxygen deprived environment of altitude uh, or similarly doing training, um, that there is a potential benefit later down the track. Now, we, we were trying to investigate that. Look, at the end of the day, it's a risky strategy. There's limited evidence. Um, like any weight loss strategy, we know that in our sport, you're going to get a increase in VO2 and a performance benefit. That's in the interim, but the long-term 
benefits from being on that type of diet are, um, are probably not good for your bone density. They're, they're definitely not good for low energy availability and other systems shutting down. Um, now, this is not an area that I'm at all an expert in, but I can tell you that when it came to doing our 10-1K rep session on those camps, the athletes on the high-fat diet, they suffered. <laughs> <Yep. Like laughs> it is watching Quentin Roo from New Zealand slower than the girls and grind away 1K reps at 4.36, you know, give him a week of high carbohydrate diet and he's back walking under four minutes again. It, it just was painful to watch as, yep. as his coach and to watch the other athletes go through it. And, um, and it really revealed itself in the high intensity sessions. So, um, it, it was, it was an enormously well-funded, well-designed and well-structured program. And, we are talking 50 grams or less than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. So what do you get in a gel? 28, 32, depending on the brand. Yeah. yeah. So this is what they were being fed. They, they were still fed in terms of calories consumed, what they normally would do. It was just done by um, different diets. But I will also say that Louise was very instrumental in Jared's 2012 plan. Um, she gave up a lot of Saturdays to come and do long walks with us. Um, she was on the drink table in London. We know that Jared, through the course of the event, consumed 89 grams of carbohydrate per hour of exercise. So that's, that at the time, I mean, the cyclists can do it because they're on a bike and they don't have the same sort of washing machine action of things sloshing around in their body. But there was a big, big focus on Jared's preparation that year, working with Louise on fueling appropriately for the race and I think you'll find since then there's a lot more people are doing it and trialing it and, and it is something that has to be trained you can't just not do it in training and then just try and force you know high strength drinks and gels and you know little lollies and all of those things into you during yep. the race so, so she was very good at doing um the pre-race diet in the last three or four days just to, to make sure that he wasn't going to have stomach disturbances on race day, um, fuel himself before the race and also during the race. Yeah. Oh, no, that's fantastic insight for everyone to hear. Um, yeah, just, you know, with a coach working at, with athletes at such a high level. Um, yeah, because, yeah, there's, there's yeah, a lot of mix, mixed, um, mixed information out there, so it's great to hear coming from you and like just so 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 much great information and insight to hear um yeah from the trenches as well um at, at like um being so heavily involved with the ais and having such a vast array of coaching experience like um no i've really enjoyed chatting to you today brent thanks so much for the time um yeah. part of it thanks for thanks for thinking of me and it's always good to um, you know, chat about some of the things that we've done and done well, and, and hopefully other people can can learn and, and embrace some of these. Um, I will say the biggest part of my coaching problem now is I'm more of a volunteer coach and an employed coach. Is that you know all the stuff we're talking about here is the one percenters, as they say. Um, the the getting athletes to put their shoes on twice a day and do the minimum. 
stimulus required for a performance is still a bigger part of coaching. You know, getting getting athletes to commit to doing 500 to 800 hours a year is is probably the thing that's going to make the biggest difference rather than 89 grams of carbohydrate in the yep. do them. They're the big things first and, uh, and then everything will fall into place after that. Yeah, no, that's such a good message to finish on. Uh, thanks so much, Brent. No worries. Cheers. Nice.